This week we conclude our series in Mark and suspended it for, for Christmas, uh, but we're going to uh, this week turn one more time to the Gospel of Mark and, and to the sermon outline. You'll see those uh, words found on page, let's see, we've got two, two things going on here, pages 10 and 11 in the, in the bulletin. passage opens in the upper room. As we saw last week, Jesus there gathered with his disciples, and the pervasiveness of sin and the depth of sin manifested in the denier and the betrayer and the ones who would be disloyal to him. We pick up the story now in verse 22 and continue on. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said. I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You will all fall away, Jesus told them. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But, see, but Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. Let us pray. The depth of our sin and the sin of the disciples, O oh Lord, is a grievous thing to us. We see how much we needed a Savior and how little refuge we can take in our own good works, and how we have failed you utterly and completely, and how much you loved us. In these moments we pray, as Chuck has asked, may you fill us with your truth, your spirit, and what you want us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Recently, I was in a Dunkin' Donuts getting another healthy breakfast. <laughs> and the customer in front of me said, ordered something I'd never heard of before, a frozen hot chocolate. I thought, I got to see this. This is interesting. A frozen hot chocolate. Sure enough, they were served, and out the door they went. Now, I didn't inquire about how to do that. Maybe you've had one, and you can tell me after the service what, how it goes together. But it just seems to me that those things don't go together. The hot chocolate I know of is not frozen. And the frozen drinks that I know of are not hot chocolate. And how does hot and frozen go together? In the same way... Jesus is pulling things together here in these last few moments of his earthly ministry that don't seem to go together. 
and we'll look at them for a few moments this morning. The upper room is now emptying. The meal that Jesus had looked forward to was over. And now we come to the worst night in the history of the world. The darkest time in Jesus' life now begins to unfold. And it's painful to watch because we know what's going to happen. And he knew what was going to happen. We know how this ends, and it ends badly for the disciples in the sense that they, what they promise here doesn't come to pass. They make fools of themselves. They fail. As I say in the outline, the biblical story is not the kind of neat, comprehensive explanation of reality that leads believers to the proud position that they have all the answers. This is a dark night, and this is a bad night for the disciples. Devastation everywhere. We must ask, what would the Savior be thinking? How could he find any good in this? He himself is going to sacrifice himself in the most painful torment. And his closest associates, the ones with whom he has poured his life for three years, are all going to fall away. Every single one of them is going to turn apart from him. And if you've seen pictures of Hiroshima and Nagasaki after the the bomb was dropped, they couldn't be more extremely destructive than, than the sense of destruction that he must have felt. His life ebbing out. His disciples filing away. Betrayal denial, and disloyalty. And he knows it. Being God, he can predict what's going to happen, and so the first thing he says is, you will all fall away. I must ask you, how would you feel if you were in his position? He was the son of God, he was divine, but also he was human. He was the son of Mary and of Joseph, excuse me, of Mary, and whose birth we're about to celebrate and who was subject to all points of temptation like we are, yet without sin. But how would you feel if you knew this was going to happen and you stood in the presence of those who would deny and betray you? What would you say to them? Well, he starts with the facts. He's now setting the context for the grand drama that is about to unfold. Rebellion and disobedience are not going to go away on their own. Something has to be done with these disciples because these past three years have not yielded much understanding, faith, or faithful service. Can you imagine how he must have felt? Suppose those closest to you had been appealed to you personally and they all said no. Each one. And yet, in this devastation, we read the biblical interpretation of these moments in John 13 this way. When, when Judas was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, then God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. Once. 
My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. But I give you a new command, that you love one another. As he gives this command, he speaks of what's about to happen in terms of glory. And so right at the beginning of this episode, of his filing out of the upper room and going forth to carry out his work as the Redeemer, there is this collision of darkness and glory. Frozen hot chocolate. Two things that don't matter, don't match. Two things that surprise us to find them together. We would say, were we in those circumstances, that we would be devastated, and surely he felt very deeply the rejection of Peter and Judas and the others. But this reminds us that salvation is by sheer grace. As I say in the outline here, it favors the failed, it favors the outsider, the weak, because it goes only to those who know that salvation must be by sheer grace. And the disciples have not learned that yet. They're about to get another lesson, but they clearly did not get it. And there was no better teacher than Jesus in the history of the world. So that shows you the depth and hardness of our heart, that even after all these years and all this time, the disciples still think, as we'll see in a moment, that it's a matter of what they can do. Salvation, I say again, is by sheer grace. It favors those who see that they are failed, that they are outsiders, that they are weak, and it goes only to those who know that salvation must be by sheer grace. Thus, the Bible does not show us story after story of the heroes of the faith. I mean, these are the 12 apostles, minus one. These are the ones who were invited, the only ones who were invited into the upper room in this meal that Jesus so sensitively and tenderly sought to have. But we read in the Bible not of the heroes of the faith who go from strength to strength, but rather that the Bible is a record of God's intervening grace in the lives of people who don't seek it, who don't deserve it, who continually resist it, and who don't appreciate it even after they have been saved by it. This is a description of these twelve clearly fulfilled in these moments, and we feel it ourselves, for we too As Isaiah says, like sheep have all gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53, the Lord put on him the loneliness and the devastation of Monty Thursday. And he bore that in addition to the physical pain for us. So I ask, have you bought into the idea that you are exceptional? I think the disciples had. Do you think that you do not need a Savior because you are good enough? Are you resisting his approach to you to show you that salvation is by sheer grace? Because they respond, they say, with Peter. Peter speaks, but he speaks for them. Even if everyone falls away, I will not. This isn't the first time he's spoken like this. But now at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, he seems to have learned nothing about the role of works in our lives. Indeed, Peter does not know how foolish he looks. He's making a public spectacle of himself. He thinks it's up to him. He thinks he can do it. 
Oh, no, 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 no. Lots of other people may fall away, Jesus, but not me. I'm not going to make that mistake. Christianity gives hope for the righting of wrongs and the redemption of all things through God's saving in Jesus Christ, but it does not teach a redemption that human beings can bring about. So again, in this night of devastation, there is a lesson, there is glory, there is hope, there is possibility. God is at work. And he's showing that the Bible says that redemption cannot be a utopian hope in inevitable human progress or in human ingenuity, but only in God and in God's time. So he accomplishes his redemption with grace plus nothing. The disciples may have good intentions, but they are weak. In just a few moments, they'll fall asleep on him, although he makes a special personal appeal to them. Perhaps you felt this way. Perhaps you thought that you would not be like the others. But the Bible says we all like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. And we've replaced faith with pride. Proverbs 8.13, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance. And that's what Peter is showing. I can do it. I'll make it. Maybe the other 11 or 10 or whatever there are won't do it. But I will. Even if all fall away, I will not. Oh, Peter. Jesus predicts his denial, of course, three times before the rooster crows. Oh, Peter, what are you saying? Have you and I bought into the mistaken idea that Christianity is about those who live moral and good lives and consequently go to heaven? No. Rather, one of the main themes of the Bible is that even some of the ablest human beings who ever lived, such as Abraham, David, and Paul, could not rise above their cultures or the self-centeredness of their own hearts, but by clinging to the wondrous promise that God's grace is given to moral failures, they triumphed. That's the story. That's the biblical theme. You can't do it. And if you think you can, you're wrong. We are saved by grace. It is a gift of God, not of ourselves, lest any should boast. How clear can it be? And the disciples serve here as a negative example, as always, or as as very often. Peter doesn't know how foolish he looks, and neither do we. For the others join him. They say all the others did the same. There were no exceptions here. No one got it. No one put the pieces together. This, as I say, is pathetic overreach. Does no one get it? The answer is no. More devastation, more difficulty, more trouble. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But there is good news. Because the glory and the darkness brought together in Jesus Christ on this night yields tremendous blessing for his people. Tremendous power and answers. Two major biblical truths are seen here. First of all, what we've seen throughout the Scripture, the reversal of the weak and the strong. God often chooses to work through second sons 
through the least of the sons of Jesse, through the ones without social or economic power. He works through Leah and not Rachel. He works through Jacob and not Esau. He repeatedly refuses to let his gracious activity run along the expected lines of worldly influence and privilege. Instead, he puts in the center the person of the, wor- the person the world would put at the periphery, and Jesus is the greatest example of this. So glory and darkness come together, and so does weakness and strength. There was nothing about him, Isaiah said, there was nothing about him that was attractive, save his person. We were not drawn to him because of his power and the way he dazzled us. He was weak. He was the least. He took the lowest place. So now two more things that don't match come together, weakness and strength. Ordinarily, they are opposites. They are apart. They are divided. But in Jesus, they come together. Perfect weakness and marvelous strength. And it's part of what God has wanted to do throughout the whole Old Testament and New, and that is to pick the least of the sons of Jesse to slay the giant Goliath. To let Leah be the mother of the Messiah, not Rachel. To select Jacob, not Esau. So Jacob was a scoundrel. Weakness and strength brought together. Brought together in Christ. This is seen throughout the Scriptures. And this is how God wants to work. Two things that we don't think fit together, weakness and strength, are marvelously united in Him and in His people. But when we are weak, Paul says, then we are strong. I prayed that this thorn would be taken from my side, but I learned a valuable lesson By implication, one that the disciples hadn't learned yet. That when I am weak, then I am strong because my strength comes through Him. So we see that in this marvelous illustration of the pathetic disciples, a beautiful Savior who submits to this group, who humbles Himself to carry forth His work. We see, secondly, a reversal of works and grace, which I mentioned a bit already. Christians are not saved by summoning up their strength and accomplishing great deeds, but by admitting their weakness and their need for a Savior. We do not pull ourselves together or master our situations and manifest strength of will and determination, for we cannot do it. The disciples failed. That's the story here. They weren't just having a bad day. You can look backwards through the whole thing or forwards in the Garden of Gethsemane and they fail all the time. Their works do not save them and they are not apostles because of the greatness of their faith. They are apostles because he selected them and he put them in that position and he made something out of nothing. He made the dead alive. He made the weak strong. He made the sinner to see, the blind to see and the lame to walk. And this is good news. This means that we can get in. This means the door of heaven is wide, is wide enough for the unbeliever, the weak, those who know that they're weak, to approach the throne of grace. 
Have you bought into the idea that heaven is not for you because you've blown it? Who blew it worse than these guys? Who was more blind, more dead, more selfish than these 12 so-called apostles? Make it 11. So the thing to do is to acknowledge that you are weak. There's no denying it. You're just simply telling the facts. It's Peter who's making a fool of himself by saying, even if all fall away, I will not. When we say, I know that I'm weak and I need your strength, then we're right. We're not making fools of ourselves. We're making headway. We're making progress. So acknowledge that you're weak. There is no denying it. See, this isn't a message or a passage about those terrible disciples, those faithless followers of Jesus, those dense apostles. This is a passage about us and about our weakness and our inability to see and our faithlessness. So acknowledge, you might as well say so. It's the honest thing to say. There's no denying it. It's obvious to everyone, especially those closest to you, and especially God. Rejoice that he became weak so that we could become strong and have eternal life. Now maybe later some of you can explain to me how you can have frozen hot chocolate. (laughs) And maybe next time I'll order some. But these things go together that seem opposite. And you need to understand them as this is really basic. I'm not saying that it's easy. Because the disciples missed it. And they were very close to Jesus. But this is basic to understanding and making progress in the Christian life. Seeing that in this hour there is both darkness and glory. That Jesus, as bad as this is, and as awful as it was for him to endure it, he says, was part of his glory, and now is the Son of Man glorified. This is Jesus doing his greatest work, the work of redemption. And in doing so, he brought together weakness and strength in a marvelous way, a memorable way. And he told us the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. So as we walk in his steps, as we follow our Savior, we also see that when we are weak, he makes us strong. And those two do go together. 2 Corinthians 12 and Paul's thorn in the side is not the only place where we learn that. We can learn it in the school of life. When we are weak, he makes us strong. When we bow down, he lifts us up. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up, the Bible says. Those two things go together, although they seem quite different. And so, too, does our Savior's grace and our, our sin. For great is the disciples' rebellion and disobedience, and they turned away from him. But greater still is the love of God who saw past it all to accomplish our redemption when we did not deserve it. So as we conclude our service today, singing love divine, all loves excelling, we see that this whole incident is driven by the eternal grace of God coming down to us from heaven through the Son and by the Spirit. Let us pray. 
You have brought together, O Lord, our need and your provision, and we thank you. And we pray that you might help us to see through the eyes of faith that we can't serve you effectively unless you help us, that salvation itself is a gift, nothing we earn or deserve, and that our hope is in you. So let us enjoy and bask in and rejoice in the love which made this happen, when even in the darkest night of the world and of Jesus' life there was glory, the glory of the only begotten Son who gave himself for us because he loved us, In Jesus' name, amen.